Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Pool Cleaner Hour. I'll be your host, Tinker Buff, and for the next little bit of time, I'll be filling your ears with some ramblings as you lounge in your mind pool to cool off or heat up. It's up to you. I'm just here to make it comfy. Shortly after midnight on December 3rd, 1984, approximately 40 tons of deadly gas leaked out of a pesticide factory in central India. Within the city of Bhopal, an overwhelming cloud of methyl isocyanate swept through the town like a biblical plague. Nearly half a million residents would breathe in the toxin as they slept, and the thousands would die in the night in the following days, and the thousands more would die over the next several years. Even people yet to be born would inherit this disaster. This is the Bhopal tragedy, considered the world's worst industrial accident. The city of Bhopal is known as the City of Lakes. Its name is a derivation of Baj Tal, which is Baj's Lake. Baj was a Hindu Raja in 11th century. For those who may not know, a Raja was like a king or like a royal title used for South Asian monarchs. But this dude made a huge lake in Bhopal, which already had a few other bodies of water in it. Around the lakes are several palaces in a fort dating back to 1728. There are also several mosques, including one from the 19th century, the Taj Ul Mashid, which is the largest mosque in India. By 1969, it had been surrounded by dialect neighborhoods, overpopulated and absolutely boiling over in poverty. This unfortunately makes it a juicy stake for greedy factory owners who know they can take advantage of impoverished populations. The Union Carbide Corporation, which is a major American manufacturer of chemicals, petrochemicals, and related products, built a subsidiary plant on the outskirts of Bhopal where it would run for 15 years before this tragedy would happen. The Union Carbide Corporation was a bad move from the start. What the company thought was an untapped market for pesticides turned out to continue being a poor community. Farmers were already struggling, but just because a factory moved in didn't mean they suddenly had money to buy their pesticide products. So it never met its full production expectations. It trickled along until ceasing active production in the late uh, 80s. Dwindling production meant dwindling staff, which meant dwindling maintenance control. When the company ceased production, they said everything was fine, but they still left the three colossal tanks of deadly chemicals behind just to sit idly in the factory. And they knew the pipes were leaking. They knew some were corroded. But as would be stated in a New York Times article, internal leaks never bothered them. The problems were either fixed without further examination or just ignored. According to the same interview from the New York Times, Several months before the accident, plant employees reported that managers shut down a refrigeration unit specifically designed to keep the methyl isocyanate cool and inhabit chemical reactions. This shutdown would obviously be a violation of plant procedures. The routine maintenance checks had become so poor that this apocalyptic night started from one man flushing a pipe. Former employees would later say that about two hours after, a worker whose training did not meet the plant's original standards would be ordered by a novice supervisor to wash out a pipe that had not been properly sealed. This corroded pipe burst and multiple stopcocks failed. A stopcock is a form of a valve used to control the flow of liquid or gas. It's almost like little water dams inside of the pipes. 
So when all those failed, everything's just rushing through with nothing slowing it down. Instruments at the plant were unreliable, according to the supervisor on duty at the time of the accident. This guy said openly that he ignored the initial warning of the accident because this this gauge that told him the pressure in one of the three tanks had risen fivefold in an hour. He was just kind of used to things going off all the time. So he didn't even didn't even think twice about it. When the water of the flush pipe hit the tank of chemicals, it had an explosive reaction, and immediately the deadly pesticide fumed into the area and blanketed the town. So there was no effective warnings to the public at all. The alarm that rang out on that night was a standard one that everybody had heard about 20 times in a typical week. So no one even heard it much anymore. Kind of like when you live next to a train, you know, you get used to it. Uh, the factory never handed out papers or warnings of any kind about the hazards it presented, and there was absolutely no public education program about what to do in case of this exact emergency. The workers were so panicked that they even ran straight past buses that could have absolutely been used to help evacuate people. They just ditched and ran. So... <clears throat> People woke up to their homes being filled with white gas. Survivors would recall heavy coughing and feeling pepper sprayed by the fumes. Some people woke up to the sounds of their relatives vomiting and dying right in front of them. The town became rabid with panicked screams and thousands desperately trying to escape without being certain of which direction to even go. Brains were short-circuited in pain, oxygen deprivation, and mob levels of panic. Shampa Devi Shukla, a survivor, recalls the night as follows. It felt like somebody had filled our bodies with red chilies. Our eyes had tears coming out. Noses were watering. We had froth in our mouths. The coughing was so bad that people were writhing in pain. Some people just got up and ran in whatever they were wearing, even if they were wearing nothing at all. Somebody was running this way. Somebody was running that way. Some people were just running in their underclothes. People were only concerned as to how they would save their lives, so they just ran. Those who fell were not picked up by anybody. They just kept falling. And then they were trampled on by other people. People climbed and scrambled over each other to save their lives. Even cows were running and trying to save their lives and crushing people beneath them as they ran. So, obviously the night was worse than words could ever accurately describe. People vomiting on the ground until they died. Other seizurings. Others dying from suffocation or being trampled. Families ripped apart as children lost the hands of their mothers. If someone even tripped, they were done. 3,000 people would die within just a few minutes of the gas hitting the town. The toxic plume would cover the area for the next five days before settling into the dirt where it would continue to toxify everything. Rashida B., a survivor who lost five family members to the gas, stated this about that night as well. The poison cloud was so dense and searing that people were reduced to near blindness. As they gasped for breath, its effects grew ever more suffocating. The gases burned the tissues of their eyes and lungs and attacked their nervous systems. People lost control of their body. Urine and feces ran down their legs. Women lost their unborn children as they ran. Their wombs would spontaneously open into a bloody abortion. And even experiencing this, she continued to state... Those who escaped with their lives are the unlucky ones. The lucky ones are the ones who died that night. B and her family tried as far as they could that night, but her pregnant mother struggled greatly. They cleared the denser cloud and set at the roadside helplessly, and by the end of that same day, both of her parents 
and her three-year-old brother was dead, and she was alone. So over 36 years since the disaster, survivors have still been destroyed by an onslaught of cancers, respiratory diseases, and what one doctor described as monstrous births. Out of every three children born to women who were pregnant on the night of the disaster, only one survives, and of those many are born irreparably deformed. In Ganesh, a researcher at the Jawaharlal Nauru Cancer Hospital and Research Center, stated this in 2002. Children are being born with deformities like cleft palates, three eyes, all fingers joined together, one extra finger, perhaps one testicle, different skull shapes, and Down syndrome. People are still regularly written down as victims of the gas. Amwadi Yadav, who is 67, can still see the factory that has never been torn down and still sits there directly from her house. She says, It would be better if there was another gas leak which would kill us all and put us out of the misery. Her husband has black marks all over his body that formed after exposure to the gas. The official death toll is something of a debate, but the most commonly agreed on number is that 574,000 people were poisoned that night and upwards of 20,000 people have died since due to the exposure. Absolutely no one from the Union Carbide has ever been properly tried or held accountable for the negligence that led to this gas explosion. And this is despite the multiple criminal charges being brought against them in India. There have been no cleanup operations of the chemical waste either. In fact, the future plans for the area have been nothing short of insulting. Treatment protocols have been relentlessly hampered by the company's sadistic refusal to share information it holds on the exact effects of the chemicals. Both Union Carbide and its overall owner, Dow Chemical, claim the data is a trade secret. And they quite literally said they'd rather keep that secret than give it to these people so that they could help save lives. Surveys done by the official Bhopal campaign groups have shown that six toxic waste pollutants still to this day taint the ground and water. All six of these are banned by the UN for their highly poisonous impacts on the environment and human health. The toxins have now reached 42 areas in Bhopal and to this day continuing to spread to more. The pond where the Union Carbide used to openly dump their chemical overflow still sits uncleaned and filled with deadly poisons, where wild animals and children have open access to it. For the past nine years, a group called Samphana Trust had run constant studies. They found that even after three decades, the death rate for anyone exposed to the gas that night is still 28% higher than average. They are twice as likely to die of cancers, any form of lung disease, and three times as likely to die from kidney diseases. They also have a 63% chance of catching any diseases or any infections than those who were not exposed. So let's jump into the legal hell, because that's what we want to add on to this. Since then, there have been several attempts to hold those responsible accountable and to seek some form of reparation for the victims, but all they saw come was a partial settlement from the Indian government in which Union Carbide agreed to pay out a sum of $470 million in compensation. So this would come out to about $400 per person, and at no point were the victims even consulted in this meeting or the amount, and even then, not even everybody actually received that $400. 
And on the U.S. side of things, since this country was also deeply involved and just as negligent, the U.S. government had done its best to pretend that they had zero involvement to the point of making sure any visits to India from the U.S. are focused entirely on anything else. This goes all the way up to in 2003, where an extradition request was sent to the U.S. for Union Carbide CEO Warren Anderson to be extradited to India, where he would finally face a proper trial. In emails revealed that Secretary of State Colin Powell emphasized the importance of this issue to the U.S. business community. But then after that, the extraction was declined and nothing more was said from them. So classified emails, which were released during that whole WikiLeaks event, have revealed that in 2010, when the Indian government was actually willing to reopen the compensation settlement for Bhopal victims, Robert Hormatz, who served as President Obama's Under Secretary of State for Economic Growth, Energy, and the Environment, told them no, because it would look really bad to open up a settlement. And somehow it was left at that? Furthermore, State Department documents revealed that President Obama specifically did not meet with anyone dealing with Bhopal out of fear of stoking the issue and that his key objective of his visit to India was instead to stress his support for Dow's business in India. And if you remember, Dow was the big boss of Union Carbide who owned the factory. On six separate occasions between 2014 and 2019, the U.S. Department of Justice has ignored a demand for Dow Chemical to appear in the Bhopal court on criminal charges. This becomes really muddy with legal bullshit really quickly, but basically there is a treaty of mutual legal assistance between the U.S. and India, which makes it so that Dow Chemical never has to appear in the Indian-based courts to answer the criminal charges. It's, uh, it's basically evil and psychotic, and to, if you just get down to it, it's just another example of how there's rule for poor people, and then there's separate rules for the super rich. It's unfortunately just what we all know at this point. So in 2015, on a visit to the U.S., Indian Prime Minister Narinda Modi met with officials from Dow Chemicals. Kumar Madan, who is the Joint Secretary at the Ministry of Chemicals and who is responsible for Bhopal, refused to comment and simply stated, I'm not concerned with this. Actual quote, I'm not concerned with this. There was a government plan in which they said they wanted to assist victims. So they uh, built a series of yoga centers because they said they would heal these poor, cancer-filled people with holistic methods. But uh, even then, they never hired any teachers, and soon after the centers became high-end wedding venues, because when you don't hire teachers, no business happens. So they built them and then immediately sold it to a rich person who built it for weddings. There are currently ridiculous plans to clear a small portion of the toxic area so that a really rich architecture firm can build a Bhopal memorial. But, you know, not actually help anybody. They're just going to build a statue saying that, yeah, this happened. So this brings us to current day. Survivors, and more so now the victims who were born after and inherited horrific issues, are in fact still fighting. As recently of March of this year, 2023, they fought against the Supreme Court of India, who told them essentially, look, it's been too long, no one cares now. Actual quote. Justice S.K. Cowell ruled that there was no legal precedent for pursuing the curative petition and that the issue could not be raked up three decades after the incident. Insane. Naturally, this was met with massive dismay and condemnation. Unfortunately, going up against one corrupt government is almost impossible, but they are fighting India and the U.S., who still harbors Dow and Union Carbide. 
They have no plans of stopping, though, and for being such an unfathomable tragedy, it just it can't be something so easily swept under the rug with a with a they, nobody cares anymore because it's been so long. Uh, so like I said, it's still going on. There's still constant news about this coming out with the legal battle systems and everything going on. The majority of my source was actually from Bhopal.org, which is B-H-O-P-A-L.org. And it's the site chronicalizing stories of survivors and keeping up-to-date tabs on the court proceedings. There are several incredible, albeit devastating, videos and articles and places to donate to help out survivors. They even show you exactly where the money goes and how it's spent. So if you are interested in not only learning more about this horrific tragedy, but even helping out, I would recommend going there. Um, but that's all I got for this this week's. I know it's a pretty dark one, um, but it's it's important. And again, it's not something that should just be ignored, especially when, uh, if you're like the majority of my listeners are in the U.S., it's our country yet again, screwing over another one and then just pulling out and acting like we didn't do anything when we were just as much involved and just as negligent. So, all right. We'll see you guys next Monday.